0: You're listening to The Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City.
1: And this is Prashant Warren from Washington, D.C. Yeah, so Ankit, I mean, I, I guess today we'll leave off uh, and start from where we we ended uh, last week with the response uh, that we've seen India take with respect to um, the attack that we saw from terrorists uh, that were seen to be originating from Pakistan. Uh, I think it's still a little bit fuzzy what exactly happened um, from the Indian side and how the Pakistanis are going to respond. We still have varying accounts from each side. Um, We've seen some accounts from uh, the Indians, including from the foreign ministry, about what happened. But maybe we should start from uh, the perspective of that, you know, telling our listeners what exactly that, India do in response to this and and how does that affect where we're headed uh with respect to this issue
0: yeah i mean you know so i guess we should apologize to our listeners for misleading them and telling them we would do a podcast about the hanoi summit between the u.s and north korea we will come back to that but we'll do it after the summit and we'll review uh what is happening right now between kim jong-un and donald trump or at least will be happening in a few hours but this is a crisis and we'd sort of raise the possibility of india retaliating for the terror attack at pulwama that killed some 40 indian paramilitary personnel as you noted. Uh, Prashant. So there are facts and there are rumors right now as with any crisis and especially a crisis coming out of South Asia where you have sort of you know Mm -hmm. media on both sides that are incredibly jingoistic and and close to the governments and and put out all sorts of things that can't be verified really with any level of precision. Um, So where do we get our facts from? Well we sort of have facts from both governments based on their version of events and you know I, I would say The Pakistani military has obviously taken the lead from the Pakistani side in providing a lot of messaging, and they obviously don't have the best track record in terms of being absolutely forthright about the facts, right? We could probably look back to the 2011 bin Laden raid for a good example. Um, But I think a good example, you know, a good kind of mental framing before we get into this conversation is to remember what happened in 2016, September, After the Uri attacks, when India conducted what it famously called surgical strikes across the line of control into Pakistan-administered Kashmir, striking at terror launch pads, right? Uh, So at that time, Pakistan denied that anything had happened. And India sort of made a huge deal out of it, and we just recently saw, you know, a major Bollywood movie come out. It sort of turned into part of <laughs> Modi's national security mythology that you know he's this strong leader who's going to retaliate against Pakistan for its continued tolerance of its soil being used by these non-state groups, uh, many of whom do have the tacit backing of Pakistan's military intelligence complex as sort of subconventional actors against India. Right. So I think that I think mm-hmm. that framing is important. So what happened at Pulwama was uh, a level of magnitude greater than what had happened in uri right uri was mostly um attackers using small arms and grenades taking out um some 20 or so uh, indian military personnel this was you know 40 uh indian paramilitary personnel killed in a vehicle borne improvised explosive device attack much bigger scale so the retaliatory options um basically as we discussed on the last podcast had Mm -hmm. to be bigger I don't think, though, that any of us, and I'm sort of including other people that were talking about India's options here, really saw this exact kind of retaliation coming, though. This is sort of on another level.
1: And and so just just to sort of expand on that, I mean, so the media reporting on the Indian response is focused on a number of elements, right? So the first has been, um, as you mentioned, the fact that this wasn't maybe in the range of options that we saw India take. I mean, this is... Essentially, the Indian response is the first time in several decades, I think five decades, since Indian warplanes have crossed into Pakistan. That's been a focus of some of the media attention. Um, There's also been a focus, though, on, you know, what the Indian targeting was, right, in terms of what the site was how the Indians have messaged this, and as we discussed in the previous podcast, it's really interesting from the perspective of not just India-Pakistan relations, but the fact that the Indians are also approaching um, elections in in April and May. So how should we think about um, how the Indians selected their targeting choice and the messaging, and and what that means about how they're trying to balance both um, responding to what Pakistan did, but then also making sure that this doesn't climb too far on the escalation ladder?
0: Yeah. uh, So I guess that's a good point to probably review the sequence of events and what exactly transpired. So I was watching this pretty much as it was happening live. And the first indication that anybody on the outside world got, uh, including in India, was an official tweet from the account of Pakistan's uh, director general of the Inter-Services Public Relations, which is the Pakistani military's public Mm -hmm. relations arm. They sort of release all press releases about Pakistan military activities. And they just noted that India, the Indian Air Force had violated the line of control, Pakistan had responded, the Indians ditched their payloads, or, you know, released their payloads, I believe was the very kind of careful phrasing, (laughs) and then uh, returned. So, you know, it was kind of like, uh, the Indians tried to do something, and we kind of chased them off, and nothing really happened. So, That, to me, initially suggested that the Pakistanis were trying to get ahead out of this with a message before India could release its own statement. And India did release its own statement. It came about eight hours after the strikes took place at 3.30 in the morning local time. Um, So uh, Vijay Gokhale, who's the, uh, the foreign secretary of India, the top professional diplomat in the country, read out a press release to reporters in a room in New Delhi. He didn't take any questions, and he sort of laid out the Indian position on what exactly had happened. So there's kind of three components to this press release. That, uh, so, th- so the first is, obviously, uh, he describes who Jash and Muhammad are. And he basically makes the point that these guys aren't, you know, first time offenders, that they are a group with a long-standing history of strikes on India, including an attack on the Indian parliament in December 2001 that almost brought the two countries to the brink of war and the attack on the Patankot Air airbase in January 2016. So he points out, you know, who Jeshi Muhammad is. The mm-hmm. second thing that he does is he just, uh, you know, he, he kind of gives the legal argument, I guess, that India would resort to to justify this strike as an act of self-defense. He says that it was acted on based on credible intelligence that was received that jaish mohammed muhammad was attempting another suicide terror attack. And he said that, you know, Fida'in jihadis, uh, suicide attackers, were being trained for this purpose. So, and here's the main part, in the face of imminent danger, a preemptive strike became absolutely necessary. So this is a preemptive act of self-defense is what he is saying. Uh, he, d- he had no point in the statement, um, explicitly comes out and says that India struck targets in, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, which is part of Pakistan proper. It is not disputed territory. So as you noted, uh, not only is this the first time that Indian jets intentionally crossed the line of control uh, since the 1971 war, there were a few incidents during Cargill, but um, at, at the prime minister at the time, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, had directed the Indian Air Force to explicitly not cross the line of control. Um, but so not only is this the first incident across the LOC involving Indian air power, but it's actually the first time conventional air power has been used by one nuclear armed state against the territory of another nuclear armed state, right? We have a few examples mm-hmm. of conventional conflicts between nuclear states, the, the most famous one probably being the 1999 India Pakistan Kargil War, one year after they had broken out with nuclear weapons. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the start of that war later this year. And the other big example uh, that most people talk about is the 1969 Sino-Soviet uh, Zhenbao Island crisis in the Chinese Northeast with the, um, along the Amur River. Um, so this is an important incident, I think, for that reason. But, you know, I mean, in the Indian media, immediately there was kind of triumphalism that India had called Pakistan's nuclear bluff and that, uh, you know, Pakistan's mm-hmm. red lines could be crossed without impunity. And India had sort of set the threshold for future... Uh, you know, attacks by Joshua Muhammad. And I think that's actually pretty dangerously wrong because Mm -hmm. of the Pakistani reaction. You want to talk a bit about the Pakistani reaction?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to go there after you mentioned it, because I think that's kind of where the, as, as we noted from the last podcast, I mean, these things can change pretty quickly. And the next, I guess, logical progression we go to is, I mean, what are the potential range of options that we could see in terms of a Pakistani reaction, right? So I think we we discussed the fact that this is, um, you know, a, a range of options and a response that from the Indian side would at least give the Pakistanis some room to maneuver mm-hmm. but nonetheless we've seen uh, Imran Khan and, and his government I mean there have been meetings there have been considerations about a response and suggestions that there might be a retaliation so then the question becomes how might the Pakistanis re- retaliate and could we see a further climbing of the escalation ladder in terms of a Pakistani reaction and the Indians having to react uh, in kind as well, so I guess that's that's where we would head next. I mean, what do you see the Pakistanis doing um, in response apart from what we were seeing, which is, you know, them very clearly con- uh, conveying a, a sense that they're very upset. Uh, there've been a number of meetings that are announced, and a, and a suggestion that they would uh, retaliate and respond in kind.
0: Right. Um, so I think this is pretty different from the Uri surgical strikes, where. We didn't get escalation because Pakistan had a face-saving way out that Mm -hmm. they just said nothing happened and the Indians got to beat their chests and say we did surgical strikes and the Indian public was satiated. And the post uri political pressures were kind of, um, you know, dissipated after the surgical strikes, and people were satisfied with the Indian retaliation. Even though, I mean, I, th- I think at the time there wasn't really any illusion that w- it would deter future attacks. Mm-hmm. So what's happening right now, I think, is quite dangerous. Uh, we're still very early into this crisis. You know, as we record this podcast, there are very fuzzy and unconfirmed reports coming out of possible exchanges along the working boundary near CL code in Pakistan uh, and potential shelling going on at the line of control. I don't want to talk about that too much because uh, we just don't have a good idea of what's happening on the ground. Uh, so uh-huh. probably good to steer clear of that for now. But um, on the Pakistani side, right? So it was really interesting that Pakistan tried to get out in front of this and take control of the messaging immediately. I think the Pakistanis made a mistake by acknowledging the fact that Indian Air Force... Um, Jets had made it all the way to Balakot because that meant that, you know, they were effectively acknowledging that their air defenses were caught with their pants down. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons nobody seriously advocated an action like this is because the assumption was this would be way too risky. India would risk its jets being shot down by Pakistani air defense crews that would be on high alert for Indian retaliatory action after the Pulwama attack. Uh-huh. Um it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, I don't exactly know how you know India determined that it would be fine to send in twelve Mirage two thousand fighters, or however many were sent in exactly. And, you know, there were no shoot downs. There may have been some kind of aerial dogfighting, but, uh, you know, all the Indian pilots made it back as far as we know. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, obviously I think that's true because otherwise Pakistan would be, you know, showing that they shot down an Indian jet or something like that. But the problem now is that Pakistan uh, doesn't get to have that face-saving off-ramp that it enjoyed after the Uri retaliation because the Pakistani public, I think, is now calling for retaliation based on this idea that, you know, sovereign, undisputed Pakistani territory was struck by the Indian Air Force. Um, So obviously, you know, India tried to also emphasize in its statement that this was a quote unquote non-military strike. And it was a Mm -hmm. bit, you know, it was a bit weird phrasing because they meant non-military in terms of the target was not the Pakistani military. It was Jashi Mohammed and other terrorists. Um, But that isn't going to be good enough here. So we heard some pretty worrying language from the Pakistani military uh, in the past few uh, hours after this crisis began. So, you know, one of the things that I think has caught some people's attention is the fact that Pakistan referenced a meeting of its national command authority, which is Mm -hmm. the body that controls the country's nuclear weapons. And that's kind of, you know, something that is immediately going to get a lot of attention in Washington, or at least would in normal circumstances where Pakistan, anytime Pakistan sort of makes reference to its nuclear arsenal or the possibility that it might be in play alarm bells go off in Washington and the United States intervenes in a crisis. And that's generally to India's detriment and India does not have an interest in having Washington mediate. So that could be one of Pakistan's plays. But uh, Pakistan has also clearly said that it will retaliate at a time and place of its choosing. So that's kind of where we get into this idea of escalation now, because depending on the targets that Pakistan chooses, India then might be, you know, we might just reset the audience cost part of this conversation and the Indian public might be outraged and then demand retaliation. So that's that's where we are right now. And I think, you know, it, we're really going to have to wait and see now what the Pakistanis actually decide to do.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a good summary, the the sort of wait and see component, because I think we've seen a number of countries, I think, including China, that's released a statement about restraint necessary for both sides. But, you know, the, there are various elements of this that, as you pointed out, we just don't know, right, whether it's the international community's response to this or how Pakistan is actually going to respond as opposed to what it's rhetorically saying. I think a lot of this is, I think from both sides, right? It's a combination of theater and rhetoric, but then also the reality of how they actually respond. Um, But I do think You know, as we've both discussed in the previous podcast, um, you know, a lot of these things tend to be framed in terms of broad things like, you know, rationality, deterrence, escalation ladder. But, you know, we should keep in mind, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty here between two countries with nuclear arsenals and a lot at stake both domestically and internationally. So Mm -hmm. I think we're right to sort of emphasize the fact that we still don't know a lot of the, the range of responses and what we'll actually see relative to what we think we will see or what we should
0: Right. And, you know, I mean, uh, going back to the Pakistani statement on the uh, nuclear command authority, it is it's nuclear signaling. Mm-hmm. And it's I think I think it's being done primarily for the purposes of reestablishing deterrence, right? I think the Pakistani right. military feels that deterrence failed, and the fact that India felt emboldened enough to conduct these strikes on KPK. So now Pakistan has to go out of its way and try to do something that will remind India of what the risks of conventional escalation were. Like much of the conventional wisdom suggested after the Pulwama attack itself, you know, you know, I think that was a big part of the reason why nobody really thought that Modi would right. authorize airstrikes on Pakistani territory. So what might we see, you know, um, I mean, this is a podcast, so we can, you know, speculate a little bit, but, you know, I don't want to get too far out there. But something that Pakistan could do is, um, you know, at the lowest level of escalation, Pakistan has always threatened, or since, you know, in recent years, threatened the use of its tactical nuclear weapons, the Nasser. So what we could see is continued shelling and small fire exchange across the line of control. And then Pakistan might potentially flush out its Nasser batteries, which are usually in central storage. And that sort of you know, will be observed in India and will be a reminder that nuclear weapons are on the table and are in play. I mean, that would be a hugely, um, I think, dangerous move to have those out there because um, we also think that the Pakistani military may sub uh, might delegate the use of those weapons. So th- the chances of miscalculation, I think, rise pretty dramatically. But if Pakistan wanted to move beyond verbal nuclear signaling and actually put its nuclear weapons where its mouth currently is, I think that's maybe one of the ways it might choose to do that. Uh, so that's something we might also see Pakistan test one of its systems in a visible way in the coming days. Um, so there are ways to uh, in which, uh, you know, Islamabad might, might move on this. And, you know, I think the big question right now is what is Washington going to do? Uh, we have uh-huh. a president who is really not engaged in this crisis at all. I mean, he made a comment a few days ago that was really, you know, this is bad. Both countries should stop bickering. And it wasn't really serious. And now he's in Hanoi, distracted with North Korea. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have a trade agreement with China that's going on. And this crisis just does not seem to be something that, is going to be intervened at at the presidential level. And maybe that's a good thing. But we also don't know exactly what the State Department is doing. The Indian External Affairs Minister Susmash Swaraj did say that she spoke with Mike Pompeo after the, um, after the strikes, uh, but there's no readout on either side of that conversation. So I think we'll have to wait and see how Washington deci- uh, decides to play its cards here.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I think as you pointed out earlier too, I mean, there are all these uh, reports about what's going on in the line of control with respect to, and, and we should emphasize to listeners too, I mean, there are actual people that are living alongside these borders, you know, villagers, townspeople, um, who have been affected by this, you know, hundreds of people fleeing their villages, according to reports and such. So, you know, while we do talk about this as a state to state conversation, I mean, there are th- this uncertainty does affect the livelihoods of, of individual people as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really uh, good reminder. And probably a good note to close on um, mm-hmm. is that you know, there, the Indian crackdown in Kashmir is, is continuing. And especially after uh, the strikes, uh, we're seeing sort of, um, I think, crackdowns on both sides. There are reports that Pakistan is cracking down on telecommunications infrastructure in uh, Azad Kashmir and Pakistan-administered Kashmir and, uh, and, and in parts of KPK to prevent news of the attack getting out, right? So one of the things that's interesting in this environment is that you know, we have open source researchers that use satellite imagery and things to substantiate events like this. If uh-huh. if India did use these kinds of large precision guided munitions, there will be burn scars that satellite imagery will be able to pick up. There will be destruction. This is not like the URI surgical strikes where whatever India did was on the scale that would basically remain secret enough that the Indian government could selectively release information as it chose to. So it might not be entirely under the government's control, what information comes out at what time. And that also introduces, I think, some interesting uncertainty into how the escalation might play out here. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, um, I think we both hope that this does, you know, de-escalate with a, uh, with, you know, with both sides kind of realizing that there's really very little to be gained here by uh, continuing this crisis anytime. Absolutely. Right. Well, Prashant, we'll end it there. Um, And uh, thanks a lot for joining me.
1: Good to be with you. Yeah.
0: And uh, like I said, we'll definitely come back to the Hanoi summit between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, That is about to play out in a few hours after we tape this podcast. We're taping this on Tuesday, February 22nd. So Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are both in Hanoi, but they have yet to meet. So thanks a lot for listening. And uh, like I said, we'll be back soon with more.